On this episode of Counter Stories, we talk about the importance of our elders and how we can combat anti-Asian violence against them. Plus, we introduce a new collaborative project with KMOJ, Ampers, and some of our crew members. Welcome to Counter Stories, the podcast for people of color, by people of color, and everyone else. I'm Halili, owner of The Other Media Group. Anthony Galloway, senior partner at Dendros Group and executive director of Arts Us. Luz Maria Frias, deputy attorney general for the state of Minnesota. Any comments and thoughts that I have are attributed solely to me and are my own and should not be attributed to my office. I'm Don Eubanks, associate professor at Metropolitan State University in social work and cultural consultant. And we have a special guest joining us this week. Chanita, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, this is Chanita Pingdara Potter with the SEED Project, Southeast Asian Diaspora Project, a community-based organization um, on a mission um, to grow social empowerment ecosystems through cultural organizing, critical language, and just storytelling. Thanks for joining us, Chanita. Um, You know, we've talked about the anti-Asian violence and the uptick since the coronavirus um, in the past. And I I don't know, maybe it was just me being hopeful or naive and thinking that after Trump left office, maybe there would be less because we're not going around being called the, you know, the China virus anymore. Um, But we have seen an uptick in anti-Asian crimes against elders. And so I wanted to bring you, Chinya, in to talk with us, um, as well as as the other Counterstars crew members, just about the importance of elders, um, elders in our community. Um, You know, it's it's important that we keep them safe um, and that these, these crimes against them stop. And so... I, I really wanted, uh, as most of you guys know, I am one of the caretakers for my grandmother. She's actually going to come stay with me next week. Um, she lives with my parents, and they're going on a road trip. So she's going to come stay at my house with me for the first time. So it's, it'll be interesting um, as I work from home um, and with my two dogs. And the thought that something like this could happen to her makes me so angry. Um, you know, in our culture, we were raised to, to, to honor our elders, um, especially in the Asian community, but I know in, in all of uh, communities of color. And Chinita, you know, what are some of the things that you're hearing from community, uh, from the elders that you work with around this uptick? Yeah, so a couple of things. I mean, my, it makes my blood boil um, just to know that our elders are being targeted because they're they're quiet, they're vulnerable, they keep to themselves. And what makes it more cruel is that, um, especially, you know, at least I can speak from um, API and Southeast Asian elders is that, I might get emotional talking about it, but like I think about how the elders that I work with and even including my mother who has um, also been a target, has been targeted um, at grocery stores and, other places at malls too and it just doesn't make sense to me but I think the thing is you know we know that our elders and our Asian communities mean everything to us they're our rock they take they care for the village they're the ones that care for the village in our kind of collective model of care and um, you know my my mother said the other day 
after is after a couple of incidents just saying you know i'm just trying to mind my own business you know <laughs> like why why can't i be left alone um and i have my problems around how media is also portraying or not portraying enough you know narratives around um api elders i don't really understand why we have to talk about numbers statistics to for people to care right now we're in real time trying to make sure our elders feel safe and feel um or have a a way to um the tools and the knowledge and the things that they need to get help when something happens but i think locally here um a lot of the minnesota asian minnesotan organizations are trying their best to figure out how do we keep our elders safe and you know what do we do when harm is being done so that there's a two part piece to that which i've been in conversations with folks about this but there's there's some real time transformative justice practices that need to happen with all of our communities our black asian you know latinx and um indigenous communities around alternatives to calling the police right there was a thai elder in bay area um 84 there was a video that came out where um he got brutally attacked by a young man who seemingly by the video is black um and so they couldn't tell who it was um he died from his injuries um and so they were trying to figure out who it was so immediately i think days after the video surfaced um an actor a, a famous asian american actor had put out a call a uh, reward uh to find the perpetrator and so a couple and then a series of young black men were being targeted um because of it yeah and so and then uh, all the social justice and grassroots organizations then um was calling out this actor to not um practice anti-blackness um and things like that and then you know it just put into light how much we needed to figure out a, a better way to stop the harm and i think that's where a lot of people were looking towards trans- transformative justice principles um in approach to addressing it yeah this see this this is a these are some very important patterns to intersect um i think your example is perfect to show this too how is it that we have these age old divisions between black and asian community but but also communities of color just in general right it's it's a pattern in our country of putting it pitting us against each other for the perceived scarcity of resources and and a, a whole lot of different um a whole lot of different reasons um we are pit against each other to see um you know for for position for who's going to be the model, most model minority and all these different things that make us point towards each other and yet we also have such a deep similarity in the veneration of our elders that don't seem to 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 cross and i think this is a perfect example of the intersections of how even when trying to seek justice we are plagued by these um constructed these socially constructed divisions when we should be in complete solidarity um and so i think this is a perfect example of that level of intersection between those issues anthony i would add to your point that there's also an anti-blackness that we have to call out that goes hand in hand with white supremacy our society has begun to talk more about white supremacy which is only half of the equation because in my mind white supremacy and anti-blackness go hand in hand It's not simply white centrality, it's not simply white supremacy. It is coupled with anti-blackness 
And that's the, that's the problem here is that so much of our society has ingrained that anti-blackness in their mindset that we have to really unlearn that and move forward. Chinita, you also raised a point regarding why are, why does it take numbers to care, right? I agree with you, but I want to take it up one step higher from that, which is it is, it has been known for decades, if not longer, that the statistics that are reported are underreported, meaning that it does not capture the accuracy of the numbers of anti, um, just biased hate crimes. It just doesn't. And the Department of Justice um, is very clear on that. There is not a uniform way of tracking those metrics around the country. So every state is different and the standards are different, which leads to further flawed data. So all along, we have a flawed system, bad data in, you know, bad data, bad results out, right? So we also have to keep that in mind that even though the data that they're putting out seems to be, for some purpose, it is incomplete data. You've been listening to Counter Stories. I'm Holly Lee with crew members Luz Maria Frias, Anthony Galloway, and Don Eubanks, and our special guests, Chinita Pangdara Potter, Executive Director of The Seed Project. Support for this show is provided by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. I've had the opportunity to have Hmong, Karen, Thai, Vietnamese, and other Southeast Asian students in, in our social work program. And many of them share share information on their on their cultural nuances, especially for the respect of their elders. And there's much about the Hmong and some other Southeast Asian uh, communities that's very similar to Native American. I mean, because we're all tribal. And we all revere our elders, and our elders play a special role. But I'm also African-American. I'm also black, and and um, we revere our, our, our elders in the black community also. You know, the respect for our elders is there. Then when we look at this intersection, I think uh, Luz pointed out and Anthony pointed out that the uh, in this country, um, that so, the, the social construction of this um, separation to keep us separated, you know, to keep us divided, fighting over the same piece of pie has been a, a successful strategy by the dominant culture that then allows them to continue with business as, as it is. And, um, and I think it's, you know, it's long overdue that, that we, uh, push all that stuff to the side I would I also thought that after the election that hatred that um that we had been seen displayed would have subsided a little bit um but not because uh I think that uh, on the news we've been hearing the increased rates and it, it just saddens right. me that it's directed against the elders in those community. I there's a couple things that you said that I want to name how um you know, growing up, so I grew up in North Northside in the Harrison neighborhood, um, which was predominantly Black and Lao and Hmong, um, and also um, Mexican. And we were always pitted, you know, the and all of our young boys were targeted by the gang task force, you know, of the time. And there's some lessons there because I think 
when we talk about some of the cultural nuances that connect all of our communities together, you know, I, I return to like the village model and how elders care. Um, it's the same concept because my mother um, and a couple of the aunties on the same block would always have our back kitchen door open. And, and every time I come home from school, we get off the bus and there was a connection in the kitchen all the time. You know, you go sit down. All of my friends would sit down around my mother's kitchen table or some other auntie's kitchen table. Um, and we would eat meals together and talk about things that like didn't even matter, you know? And I think that what's beautiful about that is that, you know, as we grow, as we grew older, uh, we get more and more disconnected as we kind of like get further and further away from communities. And so I just bring up that example because I was, I was talking to a friend who talked about how when things happen, when harm happened to her and she was a young black woman, she came, she, she, a few times she would stay in my mother's kitchen because she felt safe. She felt safer. And so I think there's a level of that um, that we don't also don't talk about how much we do try to care for each other as BIPOC communities too. When I was talking to some of my Asian elders about what was happening, what they were reading in the news, because it made its rounds. I mean, they, they were scared. They didn't really want to be outside. And these are elders that love being outside in their community gardens or whatnot, you know, but I think um, we have to remember that the majority of our communities are trying and have been coexisting in a way where, you know, we have felt safe and welcomed and together, you know, so I think returning to that village mentality and how we've always cared for each other is something that I think sometimes gets lost. Um, you know, Chanita, one of the things that, you know, as I, as I hear you talk, uh, I, I hear you speak to what happens, what happens in the stories in between, the stories that we don't get in, in the public space. And we do have, um, a pl I mean, I've got a plethora of examples of how our shared humanity keeps us in proximity, connecting to each other. At the same time as there's shared conversation about how young people are disconnecting from elders that are not going along with this veneration, like we still have those issues, right? Let's not just be clear, like aspirationally and, and, and culturally, we have a veneration of elders. We also have breakdowns that get exposed by the experiences just in our communities as well. That's also at play. They're not separated, but we don't get enough of those stories about how we bound together for survival. You know, we, and Luz, I think you said it before, whenever, um, the society, whenever general society catches a cold, communities of color get the flu, right? And there's just varying levels of experience with it. I, th I think you, you bring attention to the fact that this rhetoric exposes ley lines that are already there. They're already present, ready to be fractured and stressed and strained. And you add any stress or strain to that. And then we get the outpouring of, 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 not just attacks on on elders by folks who are motivated by by the racism for the language around COVID, but also the internalization of that uh, for for young folks who who you know I know in the Twin Cities we had huge issues. Um, it started between black uh, uh, Hmong and and uh, black and Hmong young people were going back and forth, and then all of a sudden the vulnerable populations get pulled into it, 
uh, because I'm trying to to if I know that I want to hurt you. And I also have this understanding that we both have a respect for our elders, but then all of a sudden elders now are a target to try to communicate hurt. Like all of these things get exposed when you have this kind of rhetoric that gives permission for folks, regardless of background, to try to enact this harm to certain communities. You've been listening to Counter Stories. I'm Holly Lee with crew members Luz Maria Frias, Anthony Galloway, and Don Eubanks, and our special guest, Chanita Pangdara Potter, Executive Director of The Seed Project. Support for this show is provided by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. So what can we do about it, you guys? I mean, you know, I, I've seen a lot of conversations pop up uh, between folks from the API, Asian Pacific Islander, and folks in Black community. Um, I think that's been really great. I think one thing that, you know, we hear a lot, especially if you talk to to folks who hold anti-Asian or anti-Black views is, you know, we'll say, well, what about your friend so-and-so? And they'll say, well, that's different. He's not like the other, you know. I mean, is it just being able to bring our communities together in a space? Uh, I mean, you know, hard to do with COVID, especially with elders, to do technology, but what 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 can we do at this point, guys? Yeah, I mean, there's so many things that we can do, right? But something that I think I get, maybe the the better word might be impatient, that I get impatient with is um, how much every time this happens, we're like, okay, let's have whole, let's hold processing circles. Let, let's look inward. Mm-hmm. Let's look at mm-hmm. individual self. Mm-hmm. Let's work on ourself, you guys. Like, I, I think what what people forget to do is like let's talk about the deep analysis let's talk about the the systems that can in cultures that continue to make racism thrive and 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 talk about white supremacy and how that has and capitalism too has also contributed to us all being part of this terrible cycle against one another um and and what do we do about it so i think the analysis and the action is missing um, the, the action steps are always like, there are some immediate things you could do. So I, I, this is where I was talking about, like we've turned to transformative justice models. So what it, what, for some of you may know by Mia Mingus out of the Bay area, transformative justice collective, they do a lot of pod mapping. So who is, who do you turn to when harm happens? Look at your network, look in your community and then look outward and practicing that now so that people can actually have alternatives to calling um, the police, right? And and I think this is the thing that even, you know, abolitionists also talk about that, um, that we at SEED have been um, um, also practicing with our community members is let's build our safety network um, let's build the resources. Let's let's also resource the mutual aid that needs to happen, so that we also don't have to feel like we need to resort to this. You know, um, I think the root causes are there, but people 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 don't think um, more in depth at the systems that make this happen. So we need to disrupt that. And it's just like we can't keep returning to to normal. Like this is gonna happen again. And then you know, Tanita, you. You make a really good point about just stepping away from the the individual circumstances. And we've said this before in other segments. The mindset of Western culture is individualism. The rest of society, most of society, including 
our home countries, right? I'm talking about in the Latinx community, I'm talking about the Asian community and, and folks in the African communities are collectivists. So when you look at what's coming from the news, the mainstream news media, including public radio, it's from a very individualist approach. They're talking about transaction by transaction, right? The harm that's being caused one by one. They're not talking about the systemic issues. They're not talking about the systemic problems that you're pointing out because that would necessitate a different analysis. That would necessitate looking at the collectivist mindset of how we operate as a community together how we interact with each other and those dynamics that are intrinsically built into that analysis. And that's why we have counter stories, because we do have that mindset. We do have that capacity to look at those systemic issues and identify what those systemic issues are and raise them and call into question. But we need that on a larger platform, because if most people are still getting their news feed through the mainstream media, they're going to be short-sighted in that respect, right? They're they're only responding to what they hear rather than to what right the bigger picture right. is. And we we have to also look towards the healing work. We know we all need to do healing with one another, and you know, moving from just not only trauma-informed but healing-informed approaches to how people are working together and and acknowledging the grief. You know, like acknowledge the grief that happens without fear of seeming um, like you're anti anything. You know, I, I think that's always the, the hard line that people really don't want to to um, cross in any way, you know, and it's just, and, and, and I just wonder, um, the, these are the, the necessary but hard conversations people don't want to have. You know, it, I, I love the idea of using the things that bind us and that we share across our, our different perspectives as as the places to rally around. You know, um, one of the things as I'm listening to this conversation, um, one of the things that we have to do better about in terms of our our solidarity amongst BIPOC communities is the fact that a lot of times we only tend to interact with each other on the surface artifacts of our cultural identities. I tend to only, you know, if I only interact with Hmong and in, in, in Asian communities because of the night market, or which is a great stepping point, it's great. Go experience oh, it, rice. support, all it's great. Sticky rice. I, I need if I, I need to be able to engage beyond sticky rice and papaya salad, right? I need to to be able to engage beyond um, barbecue. I need to be able to engage, you know. And I'm, I'm using these stereotypes, uh, you know, specifically to say that that tends to be we tend to be guilty in our communities of only doing surface interaction as well, which doesn't allow for the deeper solidarity work that was present when AIM needed a place to go and found solidarity with the Panthers when when um, the brown and yellow power movements coincided with black power movements in the Cal- in, in the Bay Area, just to, to, since you referenced the Bay Area. Like there's, we have a historical record of that, of that kind of solidarity. And I just don't think we do enough intentional work ab- around that so that when, when the bubble over points happen, we aren't having to build the bridges at the same time as responding is responding to the internalized trauma that's happening in, in all of our communities, the nuanced perspectives in all of our communities, that we we can speak that into better existence. We're only starting to scratch the surface of that in land acknowledgement in, in BIPOC-led spaces. We're only beginning to acknowledge the diasporic elements of different of different things. And so I think I think um 
elders, the fact that we all, regardless of all the challenges around and the disconnects that may be happening between young and older generations, that's always been a thing. But uh, using our shared understand our shared perspectives around how we honor our elders is a really good entry point to do some of the deeper connective work beyond the surface artifacts. That's right. And something you talked about, about history, too, is that people are mis- misremembering, too. Um, there's a level of that happening, like, y'all, we, we've gone through this a couple times, <laughs> uh, a couple times here in American history. Um, and so so let's let's remember that. So having those histor- the historical context is, is important. Um, and then to, to your point, um, Anthony, is uh, when you were talking about, um, you know, how do we return to to respect our elders in a way where they hold, they are wise people with the wealth of knowledge that we are not naming. So that requires a level of decolonization on our part too, to remember that our elders came before us, their ancestors came before us, and how do we honor that? They're living histories, right? So we don't need to look back at the history books, but they are there are living histories. When I first learned about the Hmong community was through a um, colleague of mine when I worked at St. Paul's Schools, and it was through food. I mean, he, he introduced me to pho, and he took me to various different um, uh, restaurants uh, in Minneapolis and St. Paul. He explained to me about the clan system. He talked to me about the history of Hmong coming from Laos to this country. Part part I had heard about, but I, he taught me a lot. And through that friendship, and it, and it was through food. It was through food that we were able to connect and I think that, you know, it's the same thing in the American Indian community. If you stop at at um, at a Native American's house, uh, they're going to feed you. They're, you know, regardless of if they, if even if their shelves are, are empty, they're going to find something to put together to feed you. Because that's what you do. So I think, you know, I think food is one of those things. I think that I think that um where it breaks down to your point Anthony is that is that there are many uh I think communal things that happen in our community where it's a little bit harder um for outsiders to be a part of or to invite outsiders to if that makes any sense. And I think that's on that next step. So while so while he took me under his wing and taught me a lot about the Hmong community, I still wasn't invited to a wedding or this or, you know what I'm, and so that to me, as opposed to when we grew up as children, and, you know, because I grew up in North Minneapolis in the projects, not far from where Chanita was describing where she lived in Harrison, which was on the other side of Olson Highway. But in that community, it was very diverse. And and when you're in a small community like that, you do those kind of things. You go over to other people's houses. You know, uh, and, and, and you do that. So as you guys were talking, it took me back. 
because we did grow up in a village at that time. The projects was a village. It was a diverse village. And when you're a child growing up, you don't know the difference and you just experience it all. And you think that this is the way life is supposed to be. And it's all only as we mature that we begin to see these divisions and then realize how different everything was or, uh, or other members of our community are. And I think those silos begin to go up, you know, because that one show we did called Hub and Spoke, I never forgot that term. And, um, you know, because that's what we've been, we're, we're talking about. But I feel horrible for the elders in the Asian community and what they've been experiencing. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I want to return to also the conversation on gifts. Like, what are the gifts that we have always been giving each other? And in naming that, and, and you know, and that might be a, a much easier, more digestible next step for a lot of people, like remembering the gifts that you bring to each other um, right. Like you mentioned, um, you, you can't come to my mom's house without making sure that you eat her food. Cause she's going to get mad, you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> and vice versa. I, as an Asian person, Southeast Asian and Lao, I'm Lao American. I can't go to anybody's house without bringing a gift, whether it's, whether it's something from the gas station, if I forget it, like I have to bring something. And people might balk at it, but it's like, I'm going to still bring something, you know? Well, now I feel bad because when I was at your house, Pinata, I didn't bring anything <laughs> and you fed me Frankly, I did. So. I yes. had, oh my God, we had a meeting and I was like, you want some food? We got some. <laughs> well, we are just scratching the surface of this. And Chinita, we'd love to have you come back and join us um, for a longer conversation. Um, and we also have a fun announcement from me and Anthony. Um, so everybody stay tuned for that. We want to thank you, Chinita, for joining us. An announcement from me and Anthony. Uh, we are working on a new project with Ampers in collaboration with KMOJ. Um, to bring Racial Reckoning, The Arc of Justice, a project that is has already started um, covering the trial of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. Um, and Anthony and I will be working on another weekly show. Anthony, tell us about it. Sure. The show is called Bearing Witness, and it's part of this overarching project. It's going to be co-hosted by myself and Georgia Fort, who is one of the several reporters who are going to be doing daily check-ins on the trial and the proceedings happening around it for KMOJ and Ampers. Bearing Witness is going to be a chance to not just reflect on the week's events for the trial, but also to check in with key members of our community from folks who hold different positions in different organizations to folks on the street to kids, just so that we can cover and capture our moment in this moment as we reflect on this yet again, another high profile case in which we wait to see if there will be any accountability or anything that happens in results for this uh, unarmed death of this of George Floyd. Um, and it'll be a kind of a reflection space both on the trial, but also to what's happening to us in community. The city of Minneapolis had initially put out that they were very interested in, in um, hiring influencers, social influencers, um, to kind of follow and, 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 and report on, on the uh, trial, upcoming trial. And so um, how... How would you describe what you guys will be doing with Ampers and KMOJ 
and how so that folks aren't confusing what this effort with with the influencers that blew up the past week or so and then the city of Minneapolis backed out. Well, and that's been retracted now. We know that, right? Yes, yes. I was I was going to say, yeah. yeah, one of the things we were gearing up to do is to heavily critique that process because we had a whole lot of feelings around it. Uh, but since then, yes, Luz, to your point, um, they abandoned that idea because they heard from community who said, no, we don't trust that. Um, and, you know, in large part, what we are aiming to do is to capture and a reflective space on this moment. This is always important for our communities to, to check in with each other, to see what's, how folks are processing it from different walks of life, different areas, different vantage points. But, but also, but most importantly, just to reflect. This has been actually a common practice for moments like this. In 1968, it happened. It happened again in 1974. Um, areas and places for, for media from the communities that are being affected. And their reflection on what's happening is very, very important. And so that's how this show is, is, is run. We aren't here to influence a particular thought. We aren't here to pacify. We're not here to, um, to try to steer communities to acting and behaving a certain way. It's really just a place to capture the reflections and the touch points of what's happening in community with some members who can not only provide insight to what's happening, but then also just to reflect on what they're doing. We're going to be talking to Kevin Lindsay from the Humanity Center, who has a law background. We're going to be talking to educators. We're going to be talking to youth on the ground. We're going to be talking to folks who are on the front lines and folks who are markedly not on the front lines, just to capture the reflection of this community as this high-profile trial gets underway. I'm still recovering from the trauma of the last trial. Um, yes. Concerning philandro. And, and as counter stories, we were deeply involved. And I was deeply involved here in Roseville with ongoing efforts about that. And I remember the elation when uh, attorney, you know, the county, county, county attorney, attorney Choi. Uh, John Choi, decided to charge that officer. And then I remember the extreme traumatic um, impact of that individual being found not guilty. And, and I think that, you know, this collective trauma we have felt in this country, case after case after case, um, and then you throw in COVID. I, you know, you guys have a tremendous job to do during this trial. And I think that in our communities, we really need to be looking at what we're going to do, you know, to be prepared for whatever the outcome is. Because I know so many of us are probably um, not very hopeful, right? I mean, <laughs> well, to, yeah. to, to that point, that's exactly why we exist and why we are titling it bearing witness. There are some of us who are called for various different roles, but in all of this, somebody needs to bear witness to what's going on. And that's the goal of that weekly show. And that show will run on KMOJ at 1.30 on Mondays. Um, it'll also be available online. The website is forthcoming. Um, our Counter Stories website is almost ready to launch as well. In the meantime, y'all can find us on Facebook with information on, on all of these, on uh, this show, as well as the Racial Reckoning show. So thank you for joining us again on Counter Stories. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group. Anthony Galloway, senior partner at Dendros and executive director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. 
I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any comments and viewpoints are solely my own and should not be attributed to my office. And I'm Don Eubanks, Associate Professor at Metropolitan State University in Social Work and Cultural Consultant. Thanks for joining us. This program is a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.